0: All right, so Judges 3, and we're going to be in verse 31. And then we're also going to be, if you want to keep your finger there, in Judges 5, verse 6 as well. So I'm going to read both as we start, and then we'll get into the text. The, the title of the study, by the way, is uh, A Foreign Salvation. So gonna, I'm gonna, I'm excited for it. Shamgar is an unknown hero, so... Um, so Judges chapter 3, verse 31, it says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And then if you want to flip over to chapter 5, verse 6, it says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel, and they ceased to do to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? So those are the two uh, texts in which uh, Shamgar is mentioned. We've just exhausted all references to him in the rest of scripture. Um, So you might be wondering uh, why we're gonna spend an entire uh, week just on Shamgar. And so it's probably wise to justify that. I think partially out of principle, (laughs) because Shamgar is uh, mentioned in scripture, so it's probably important we understand why he's there. Just like with genealogies, uh, initially it might not make sense to us what it's doing, uh, but that doesn't mean we skip over it and move to something else that's more entertaining. Um, As much as you might be tempted and I might be tempted to go on to Gideon and his exploits or Samson's lavish lifestyle or, I don't know, even uh, the likes of the the Levite who lives more like a... uh, lived more like a pagan than even Pharaoh does uh, at the end of the book of Judges. As much as you want to explore those stories, uh, we have to do our due diligence on the front end to understand what the narrator of Judges is trying to communicate to us through this story as well. So I, say, I said the title of the study is A Foreign Salvation, and you're going to see uh, a couple things about Shamgar that are worth uh, discussing. And the first of those three things that we're going to look at is his identity. And there's all that we have about Shamgar we've just read. So we're gonna try to understand what are all the pieces we can put together about his identity. So in verse 31, it tells us his name, right? It says, after him was Shamgar. And Shamgar is a name that we see twice in scripture, but it's interesting to note you won't find this name in any other Hebrew or Jewish resource anywhere else in the archeological digs. This name is actually not a Hebrew name. It comes from a people who are on the north, or northern end of the land of Canaan, who were likely migrating in at the time. Uh, people, uh, the, the people are called the Hurrians or the Huraines. Um So Shamgar is not an Israelite. And the other clue that we have about his identity that tells us that he's not an Israelite is that it tells us he is the son of Anath. Now, Anath is not a person. Anath is a god. Anath is actually the goddess of the Canaanite peoples, uh, actually of the Hurrian peoples, which means Shamgar, is not only not an Israelite, but is likely also a follower of a false god. And so that creates an interesting dynamic for us because Shamgar is also told to us to be a judge who saves Israel. So what are we to do with Shamgar, the foreign savior of Israel, whose identity is non-Israelite and whose, uh, whose worship is not a God-fearing person. It's a, they worship a, a pagan, a false god, Anath. By the way, the other places you can see this Anath referenced is in the names of places. The only one I want to turn to, there's a couple mentioned, but uh, in Judges chapter 1, verse 33, you have one of these references. <clears throat> and we read this uh, several weeks ago. Um, in verse 33, it tells us what the tribe of Naphtali fails to do. They did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemash or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. And that Beth Anath, that second half of the name, comes from the goddess Anath, which is part of the Canaanite pantheon. Actually, it's one of the uh, consorts of Baal, which is uh, basically a fancy way of saying they sleep together in this, uh, in this pantheon. And Anath later gets combined into Greek mythology into the goddess Issachar. And so you get that into the Greek uh, pantheon as well. So Anath is, is a god of the Canaanites, and we're told that Shamgar is a son of Anath, or in other words, a follower of Anath. Now there are other possibilities but all of them leave us to the conclusion that this person is not an Israelite and part of a group of people that is likely not God-fearing because the other locations that reference Anath, like the other beth Anaths, are all places that Israel has to go in and conquer, which still leads us to imply that this is a person who's not an Israelite, therefore not someone who fears Yahweh. And so that's the details that we have on identity. Now, if you're wondering uh, if that's going to be a problem for God to use as salvation, uh, you just need to get to the end of the verse to see that it doesn't. But these are not the only instances in scripture in which we have foreign people being used by God to save Israel from their problems. So we're gonna look at two of those texts that might reference foreign people being used by God to save Israel. The first one I wanna turn to is Isaiah 45. And we're just gonna be right in verse one of Isaiah 45. So, verse one of Isaiah 45 reads like this: "Thus says Yahweh, who is, an, who is to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before him, and to loose the belt of kings, to open the doors before him that the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hoards in secret places." that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who called you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, notice this, though you do not know me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. I form the light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all of these things. What the prophecy about Cyrus is all about is Cyrus being raised up as the king of the Medes. Uh, And this is the king, if you know your biblical history, who overthrows Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. And a few weeks ago, we read about the prophecy of Babylon in, uh, in, I think it's in Jeremiah 27, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not in the place where I can see that cross reference right now, but I think it's Jeremiah 27, where we saw Nebuchadnezzar being told he's gonna be given the kingdom for a season, and it's God who puts him in the place to have that kingdom. And now the time of the Babylonian empire is up, and so God says he's gonna raise up Cyrus to be his tool of destruction on Babylon. And if you wanna see that full prophecy spelled out, let's go to uh, Jeremiah 51 to see that spelled out in full. Now, mercifully, we are not going to read all of Jeremiah 51 because it is one of the longest prophecies that's recorded in Scripture. And so we're just going to glance at a few of the verses that are listed in Jeremiah 51. And I want to, uh, with rather uh, pres- with rather good precision, so I'm going to look at my notes for this one. Otherwise, we're going to be here all day. <laughs> it is an interesting prophecy. It just, we're going to glean from it the best of the best. So in verse 11 of Jeremiah 51, you're going to see... Uh, this, this stanza break. So if, you, if yours is set in paragraph format, it'll break out from the paragraph and I'm going to start reading from there. It says, Yahweh has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, that is the Medes and the Persians, because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of Yahweh, the vengeance for his temple. So God raises up the Medes to destroy Babylon. And if you remember when we read that prophecy a few weeks ago in Jeremiah 27, Nebuchadnezzar is raised up to be uh, the person who puts Israel to judgment. And so you have the same dynamic going on here as you do in a real microcosm in Judges with Othniel. Remember, uh, you have Cushan-Rishathim who who is raised up to punish Israel, and you have Othniel who's raised up to deliver Israel and Cushan-Rishathim, although he is God's tool, if you will, to punish Israel, he's also held responsible for his actions against Israel. So it is also with the Babylonians. They're raised up by God to punish Israel. And now, God says, enough with the Babylonians. I'm going to punish them for working their evil against Israel. And so that's in verse 11. Now, if you go to verse 20 of this prophecy, it gets uh, more specific. He's going to tell them exactly what their kingdom is to do. It says, you are my hammer and a weapon of war. With you, I will break nations into pieces. With you, I will destroy kingdoms. With you, I will break in pieces the horse and his rider. With you, I will break in pieces the chariot and the charioteer. With you, I will break in pieces man and woman. With you, I will break in pieces the old man and the youth. With you, I will break in pieces the young man and the young woman. With you, I will break in pieces the shepherd and his flock. With you, I will break in pieces the farmer and his team. With you, I will break in pieces governors and commanders. Verse 24, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all of the evil that they have done in Zion. That refers to Jerusalem. And remember, they were said to destroy Jerusalem. And, he, and it says, thus declares Yahweh. And so you have that reference. And then if you go to verse 49 of this prophecy, we're going to, again, we're skipping a lot of content, but it's all relevant. Verse 49 is more, more keen, more specific. It says, Babylon must fall for the slain of Israel, just as for Babylon have fallen the slain of all the earth. So he's saying, I leveled Babylon for a time, and now Babylon must fall for those whom they killed. And again, the cross-reference for this is Jeremiah 27, when God raises up Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to punish the Israelite people. So if, we, if you want to go back to Judges, we're done with that prophecy, at least in Isaiah, or sorry, in Jeremiah. And by putting this together, Shamgar, the foreign judge who saves Israel and delivers them, we have to kind of create a category in our mind for someone who can be used by God to save Israel, who is not a God-fearer. And usually that's difficult for us to do because everyone who we see typically levied up in the text, we, we try to create a category in our mind that they're somehow a very spiritual, very God-fearing person. But Judges gets messy quick, and one of the third judges we encounter is already a messy case. And this is going to help us, though, because if we can understand this, when we get to Gideon, who is with God and then departs from God, and we get to Jethfel, who is with God and then sacrifices someone, we, we can start to clean up what is actually the messiness of the situation. So God is able to work, as we saw last week, in the messiness. But here he proves to us not only can he work in the messiness with his own people, he can also work in the messiness with foreign people who are not even God-fearers and they do his will. As Proverbs uh, 21.1 says, um, the king's heart is a river in the hands of God. He directs it wherever he wills. That's the God speaking about how he is sovereign over all things and he can direct the course of history, if you will. So that's the identity of Shamgar. His identity is foreign and he falls into a category of Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar and these foreign people who are used by God to do his purposes. In this case, he's used by God to destroy the Philistines. And so we're gonna get now onto what he does, his actions. You'll see that he's the person who's responsible for killing 600 of the Philistines. Now this does not mean necessarily that he kills them all on his own. He could be the leader, let's say of a militia and credited with the victory of the 600 Philistines that are defeated. What is interesting to note note, though, is at this point, we're early in the book of Judges, the Philistines aren't yet a superpower, if you will. So all it takes to beat them is to kill 600 of their soldiers, and now they're defeated. Later, when you see them, they're a real problem for Israel. It takes all of Israel's army and the Philistines still aren't beaten. They're fighting wars against them. Uh, Goliath of Gath is with the Philistines. As of yet, the Philistines aren't a military superpower. And so all it takes is 600 of them and they're beaten. Now, if it is by his own hand that he kills 600 Philistines, that would be quite a lot of kills. That, and he's using what's called an ox goad. If you don't know what that is, it's a, farming, it's a farming tool used to steer oxen. And so it has a sharp pointy end where you poke an oxen and you can kind of direct it to go in a certain way. And it has like a, a bigger end that has like a spade on it. The, the other reference you can see to an ox goad is actually Paul, when he's talking to Kim, King Agrippa, he's preaching the gospel to him. And uh, he, King Agrippa says, I'm not going to believe the gospel. And Paul says, you're being stubborn like an ox kicking against the goad, which, so at that point in time, it becomes almost like a a figure of speech, if you will, of being resistant. Uh, So, but that's what an ox goad is used for. It's used to steer and to drive things. By the way, that reference, if you're interested, is in Acts uh, 26, verse 14. So what we see here is he, he uses this ox goad and he probably leads a small militia or by his own hand, he kills 600 Philistines either way. By his equipment and the fact that there's 600 Philistines who go down, we can understand, and even by the end of that verse, that it's God who is allowing him to do this. So that even if this is to be understood as a militia win, it's still a miraculous victory that had. Just like Gideon when he beats uh, the army, it's God who goes before him to give the victory. It's not necessarily Shamgar as, you know, a great soldier. An ox goat is not a warrior's weapon. It's a it's a, it's a a plowman's weapon. It's, it's not a weapon. It's a tool. Uh, so... He's not a a prolific warrior, but because we see him in Judges chapter 5, verse 6, we can at least understand that whatever he did in history was significant enough that he's used as a chronological reference for Deborah. Because Deborah in chapter 5, verse 6 says, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, and then she begins to describe what Israel is like. And so she doesn't reference a time period. She doesn't reference a king. Right? It, later, for example, in Israeli history, you'll see people say in the days of King David or in the days of the temple or in the days of Moses, these are like significant people that are chronological time points for you to understand. So whatever Shamgar does is significant enough where he becomes a chronological reference point for the people of Israel in their history. Now, we only have a couple of verses about him, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't famous, if you will, in his day. He, he is though lost as it were to history, really only recorded in these two verses in scripture. So that's who he is and what he does. Now, the question is, what are we talking about him for? What is his significance? I think one of the things we can understand from the story of Shamgar from this account is something that we probably have already explored a little bit tonight, which is God is more than capable of using even rebellious people to be his tools of salvation. The title of the study I said is A Foreign Salvation Um, And this this really paints a picture of what God is like. He's not thwarted in any way by the rebellion of people or by their um, lack of ability to actually perform any kind of salvation. In this case, uh, Shamgar isn't even someone who fears God, and yet God can use him to do his will, to do his bidding. As Matthew Henry puts it, I think this is pretty helpful. He says, when he is pleased, he makes plowmen, judges, and generals, and we also see this when he makes fishermen into apostles in the New Testament. So God can do whatever he wants with whomever he wants. And the significance of those people is not so much who they are, but who they are in relationship to God. What, what does God use them for in essence? So when God chooses to use Paul, he takes Paul who is highly acclaimed in, in Israel and makes him low in Israel, but high in the kingdom. And God uses Paul. And that's the only thing that's significant about Paul. That's the reason we're, we know about Paul. The only thing that's significant about Peter, James, and John is because Jesus decides to call them out for a specific purpose and for a specific mission. The only reason we know about Stephen in the Testament is because God decided to use them for a purpose. And that's the only reason we know about Shamgar and Cyrus and uh, Nebuchadnezzar is because God chose to use them for his purpose. And that's their significance as you, as you will in history. In fact, many of the apostles, when they're writing their letters, Paul, Peter, Timothy, James, and Jude all identify themselves first and foremost as slaves of God. That's their preferred method of referring to themselves, which means they've been mastered by God and they're simply just doing his bidding. Now you want to be mastered by God in the way that Paul and Peter and those guys are mastered by God. You don't want to be mastered by God in the way that Shamgar and Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus are, because for them, it doesn't necessarily end positively. For them, they're used, but then they're disposed of when they're done. For these other apostles, they submit themselves willingly to the Lordship of Christ, to the Lordship of Yahweh. And then it goes well for them, even though they still consider themselves just as being servants of the king. And uh, a quote that I want to close with before we uh, close off our time together is this. Uh, It's Matthew Henry again. He's very quotable, at least on this section. And he says, uh, we, we need to be reminded of the fact that with God, an ox goad is mightier than even Goliath's sword when it pleases him. And so you were reminded of the fact that it's not Shamgar who's significant, it's not his weapons that's significant. And as we go into Judges and all the Uh, very interesting people we're going to meet. It's not really them that's all that significant. It's who they are in relation to what God wants to do through them. And that's a good, I think, frame for us to understand as we move into these subsequent stories because they're going to get very interesting and we don't want to get lost and distracted by all of the interesting details. We want to stay on the through line of what Judges is all about. Yeah. So let's close in prayer and then we can turn it over to some discussion time. Heavenly Father, Uh, You are so sovereign over all things. You are a God who is uh, pleased to do what you will, with whom you will, for your glory and for your purposes. Uh, Lord, we just ask that you would allow us the privilege of being used by you to do wondrous things on this earth. To cultivate your kingdom, to advance the gospel, to be people who are obedient to you and on mission for you. Lord, would you grant us that privilege and help us to study your Word, so we can be better equipped for that end, so we can know you and not just be mastered by you, but also be considered sons and daughters of you. Lord, would you grant us that privilege. We ask in your precious name. Amen.